may be seated. And if you will uh, turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. If you are new to the Bible and wanting just to check out Jesus this morning, we're so glad that you're here. And so we've printed that text for you on page in the worship guide. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those pew Bibles and take it home with you. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 11 through 24. We've printed all the way through the end of the chapter 32, but we're just going to stop at verse 24 this morning. It's been a privilege uh, to be your pastor. Um, Our relationship with Zion uh, spans almost 26 years, 15 of those, almost 15 now being your pastor, and you will... You will always remain in our family's heart. But now, I want to take us one more time into the heart of God. That we might experience joy. Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Let's ask his blessing on his word preached. We pray with me. Lord Jesus, seated on your throne, reigning with all power and authority after having defeated all of our enemies, we would pray that you would come with the balm of the gospel, the healing balm that changes lives and with all of your power 
through the glory of the gospel, would you transform us? For we need your spirit to dig deep into the crevices of our hearts that remain unseen most of the time, hidden from our eyes. But if he would work there, all of our lives would be radically changed by your grace. So we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Joy is the birthright of those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, who've entered into God's family, been adopted as His children. Joy is the birthright because Jesus has been raised from the dead. We've been given a new status in His household. We have been given the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, adored by God, the judge of all the earth. Joy is our birthright. But Paul asked the Galatian church this question. What happened to all your joy? Joy seems so fleeting at times. Joy can seem like a country that you've seen on your friend's Instagram post, uh, a pleasant place to visit, a place that you'd like to step foot in one day, but it seems so distant and unreachable, so you doubt you'll ever find it a place that you call home yourself. The benefits of joy are remarkable. Joy can bring life in the midst of trials, as James says to his readers, count it pure joy. My brothers, when you face trials of Various kinds. Joy marches into the darkest nights of the soul. Many who have been through seasons of depression will know that that season is being brought to an end because joy returns to them. Joy can break into the darkest grief and recast the experience. Joy is the birthright of those who have become followers of Jesus, so that Jesus can say, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy will be in you, and your joy will overflow in fullness. So my brothers and sisters, what happens to our joy? Why does it flee from us so quickly? And yet this parable, or these series of parables, is about joy, each three, each of them, the series of three that Jesus says is one parable, all end with rejoicing. And so let me suggest this, that the real heart of what Jesus is saying is that repentance and joy go together. Or maybe the better way to say this is that repentance is the gateway to Joy. Jesus' first sermon as he shows up on the scene and begins his public ministry begins this way. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the first thing that he says out of the gate. Peter following his example when he preaches his first public sermon after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus begins with one point. Repent. And yet. I find that what is first for Jesus and for his disciples is often last for the Christian. And maybe that is part of the reason that we have no joy. As Luther pointed out when he begun the Reformation, the, when Jesus said, repent, he didn't just say once. He meant that the whole of the Christian life is to be a life lived in repentance. Because repentance is the gateway to 
joy. And even as I say that, the images of repentance that come to our mind's eye are probably the polar opposite of joy. In your imagination, repentance probably looks like perpetual glum, downcast, and always a serious look, beating yourself up, robbing yourself of joy with perpetual self-hatred. But we need to recognize the difference between what Paul calls worldly sorrow and genuine repentance. And perhaps the reason we have so little joy is because we have so little deep conviction of sin. We aren't broken over our sin before the face of the God of all grace. And so we get broken by circumstances. But as we'll see, broken by circumstances and broken by our sin are two radically different things. Now, you might imagine here that the younger son comes to the bottom as uh, when he, in verse 17, is uh, eating of the pigsty and then he comes to himself. He says to himself, how many of my Fathers, hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll rise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But at this point, the younger son has not come to the experience of repentance. He still thinks that his biggest problem is that he's hungry and when he comes to himself he's more concerned about his own hunger than the pain that he's caused his father that's worldly sorrow more concerned about what i'm losing because of sin more concerned with the effects of sin against me than what has gone on in the cosmic treason that I've caused. And because the son, younger son, at this point is still caught in me town, his solution is not to fall on the father for relief, but to trust in his own efforts. I've gotten myself into this mess. I need to get myself out. I've experienced the consequences of my decisions, and so I need to fix this. He's even practicing his speech. You can almost hear him walking home, running over every word to make sure he elicits the Father's hopeful response. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Toying with every word. Father, Father, how should I say this to get the best? Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against heaven and before you. Now let me back into your household. Make me one of your hired servants. I'll earn my way back in. He may have reached the bottom of his circumstances, but he has not yet experienced joy-producing repentance. Now, if repentance is the gateway to joy, a shallow view of sin will lead to a shallow joy. We can't even fathom in that scenario what is on the other side, the joy that is on the other side of true repentance, because deep repentance leads to deep 
joy, but that requires a work of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. It's not something that we can produce on our own. When Jesus sends the Spirit into the world, he tells his apostles, this is what he's going to do. Convict the, sin, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to shine his light on the deepest parts of who we are because that is where we need to experience his liberating power. Oftentimes, so little of the change in our lives is because we're toying around on the fringes of our sin and not going deep into the root. At its root, sin is a corrupting power. It corrupts everything. And it corrupts in a way that produces rebellion against God. As Thomas so clearly said, we have spent all of our week trying to take the created things and make them ultimate things instead of using them as way in stewardship to God the Creator. The core problem of our sin is that we want to use God's good gifts against Him. We're like the younger son, and we're like the older son, both treating the father as a means to their ends. And the father here with the younger son, gives him what he wants. And when he gives him what he wants, he gives him over to himself and to his own desires. And it ruins him. It absolutely ruins him. The younger son's desires drive him. He squanders his wealth and reckless living. It's enjoyable for a moment. You need to know that about sin It is always enjoyable for a moment. But the end, as he is going after his deepest desires, his longings, his want to, he's become corrupted to the degree that he still longs and chases after his longings, but his desires have been corrupted to the degree that now he's longing to eat the pig's food. Children, how many times have your parents asked you, why did you do that? And the best answer you can come up with is, because I wanted to. It's at this level that we need to grieve, not just our circumstances caused me to sin, not just the person around me. It's not that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I sinned because I wanted to. I desired it. I longed for that evil against God. Thomas Watson says the key here is to understand that that what we've done is abused the kindness of God. And that's why repentance always involves sorrow because it says I've, I've committed spiritually adultery against the one who loves me Against the generous lover of my soul. And when you get to that level, then you begin to cry out for relief. If it cuts you that deep, then you begin to say, I can't fix this myself. And you join with Paul who then cries out, who will save me from this body of death? And that's why repentance is the work of the Spirit. Because he who comes from Jesus and makes us alive to the gravity of sin and to the kindness and mercy of God. Both 
at the same time. It's why the Spirit is the only one can lead to true repentance. Not be simply because He makes sin known, but He makes sin known to lead us to the amazing and overwhelming mercy of God in Christ. Because before we can ever turn from sin for deliverance, we must know that God will receive and deliver. Because if you're going to return to God, you need to know what awaits you on that return. This is the way we typically think about repentance. You need to feel so bad about sin that you'll stop it. Such a degree that we'll feel so, it's so awful, we'll just quit doing it. And that's why we love finger waggers. Finger wagons an attempt to get people to stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things, but it weaponizes God's word against God's people. It's what keeps us from true repentance. I may know that sin is destructive, but it's better than what I think is awaiting me if I turn around. Because if what I think is a shame-inducing glare of the God that I have offended, I will never turn around and return home. You see, the parable is prompted by the finger-waggers. Jesus' answer to them, their, their finger wagon, because in verse 1 and 2, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats for them. And Jesus says, okay, look, I'm going to tell you a parable. Yes, what they do is wrong. But finger wagon ain't going to change him. Finger wagon, it's not radical enough. In order to get to the root, you need something more powerful than guilt and shame. It's not simply the holiness and the judgment and the righteousness of God that brings repentance. It's the kindness of God. Because we have to know that whatever it is that's been exposed in my heart, God will receive us back. I need to know that and I need to know how he will receive me back. Every single time. The heart of God is amazingly generous. He makes the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We take a look around the world. It's full of beauty and abundance because God gives. He gives lakes and trees and summer rains that greens everything up and beaches and mountains but in his generosity, he's also created a place for us to inhabit that is full of potential and joy because that's the heart of God. That's the only kind of world that he could create. And it's even built into his economy, in his household. There's no shortage in the household of God. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives in abundance. If you sin a thousand times today... A thousand times you will find Jesus to be enough. And a thousand times your returning will produce joy in the Father. In fact, this is what the older brother gets wrong. He gets the heart of God wrong and the economy of God all wrong. When the younger son returns home and, and the father gives again generously, he sent him out generously, give me your stuff. Here you go, son. Send you out. When he squandered it, gives again. When the son returns back, the son is barefoot like a slave. The father says, whoa, 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 
put, sons on, put shoes on that boy. He's my son. He experiences, he needs to be treated like a son in my house. Put shoes on him. Put my cloak on him so that he might be received back clothed in honor. Put my ring on him, my insignia ring, so that everybody might know this is my son. All my stuff, give it now. He took it all, give him some more. And then the older son, when he grumbles, he's looking at it. He's like, Dad, you're sending all my stuff. This is all mine. You're just giving it away to the son who doesn't deserve it. And the father's response is, well, you don't understand the economy of this house. There's more than enough. There's plenty to give around. You're always with me. You have access to all this. I could give and give and give and give all day long. We're never going to run out. All that is mine is yours too. There's no shortage. And you don't have to earn as a result because God freely and abundantly gifts. And he looks at the older son and he says, I freely gave to your brother and I'll freely give to you too. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the heart of God. Generous, gracious, kind. It's what both sons forget and it is what we forget all day long. The generous heart of the Father, abounding in grace and loving kindness, is what awaits the younger son when he returns. And it is what the older son had all the time. And generous it is, but it is not cheap. It comes at a great cost. There are actually three sons in this parable. The younger son who runs away, the older son who stays home, and the son who's telling the story. Because the party's expenses. It's lavish. It's incredibly expensive. But the expense is borne by another. The father's giving all of his valuable things to the undeserving son at great cost to himself. That's God's heart. It's the heart of embrace and pursuit and blessing and compassion and mercy. And a heart that bears the cost for our returning over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it brings him great joy to do so. The father said to his servants, verse 22, Bring quickly the best robes, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But when the younger son grumbles, the father says to him, look, don't you understand? It's fitting for us to celebrate the returning of a son. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss how radically changed the son, the younger son is when he experiences this gospel from his father. Because the younger son's practice Speech and actual speech are very different. Verse 18. This is his practice speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then he experiences the father's running out to protect him from shame. Absorbing that shame himself. 
taking it on him, putting a place in honor. In verse 21, when he meets that God, when he meets that Father face to face, this is what he actually says. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called his son. What's he dropped? Treat me as one of your hired servants. He dropped his plan to save himself. He dropped his plan to cover his own shame. He dropped his plan to rescue by his own efforts. That's repentance. The definitive scholar on this parable says it this way. Repentance is just simply embracing being found. Like a lamb who rests on the shoulders of a shepherd who carries him home. Just rests. One counselor says it this way. Repentance is joining the party that God desires to throw in your honor, but in the face of your dishonor. And in his delight for you in the face of the harm that you've brought him, yourself and others. Gospel-driven grief over our sin is, is like when ice is melted into the water. It becomes pliable and softer and more usable. And the gospel is the fire that melts the ice of our hearts. And repentance is our hearts melting before the God of all grace. And what ends up happening then is repentance changes the heart at the level of our loves. It drives out a love for sin because it dwells on the love of Christ for me. Why Paul can say something like this. This is the aim of our charge. Love that issues from a clean conscience and a pure heart. Repentance changes the level of our loves because it drives out a love for sin and dwells on the love of Christ for me. The love, shame, dissipating, honor, and embrace of the Father is what finally brings the joy producing repentance. Because we're ruled by what we adore. And so his Father in his love for his Son as a sinner makes himself the greatest object of adoration. And it drives out his selfishness. Jack Miller, in his great book on repentance, says this. Do not attempt to confess and forsake your old ways apart from the love of God manifested in a crucified Savior. Instead, look to the risen Savior who intercedes at the Father's right hand for you. As the Spirit exposes the evils of your heart, observe the wounds in Christ's hand. They are the absolute, unshakable promises of the Father, guaranteeing full access to the crushed in spirit. Therefore, as you repent, believe. And He will wash your tears in the blood of the Lamb. There is no hiding in the gospel household of God. There's no need to hide from God. There's no need to hide from others. There's just no need for it. If this is the response that I'll get in my returning and rest, is the 
joyful love of God? Why hide? In Luke 7, Jesus goes to the house of a religious eater to eat dinner, and the prostitute shows up and, and wets Jesus' feet with her hair and anoints them with her alabaster jar. An alabaster jar was a tool of her trade as a prostitute. The one who found his worth in his religious performance questions Jesus. Why are you allowing your kindness to go to such a sinner like this? And so Jesus tells them a parable. You gotta love the Pharisees. They gave us so many opportunities to learn the heart of God. He tells them a parable. It ends with the point of someone being forgiven a great debt. And Jesus says, look, the person who's been forgiven little loves little. But the one who's been forgiven much loves much. And then he says, Simon, you thought you were a pretty okay person. So you didn't do anything for me. But she's not ceased to rejoice. With thanks. She's given me her most treasured resources. Because her sins are many are forgiven. And Thomas Watson comments on that parable. About how the gospel drives repentance. And is the fire that melts our hearts. And he says this. What a change did it make in the prostitute. She who kissed her lovers with wanton embrace now kisses Christ's feet. She that used to curl her hair and dress it up in costly jewels now makes it a towel to wipe Christ's feet. Her eyes that used to sparkle with lust and with impure glances to entice her lovers now becomes a fountain of tears to wash her Savior's feet. Her tongue that used to speak vainly and loosely now is an instrument set in tune to praise God. And you see, it wasn't the condemnation of the finger waggers that brought about such a change. It was the kindness of the forgiving Jesus who lavished her with all of his love and mercy. And he says to her, go in peace. Why? He does not do this reluctantly. But with great joy. Imagine a world-renowned chef. He's invested all of his years into training, honed his skills over decades of experience. His entire ambition, his entire existence, his joy is to cook for others, to set before others the treasures of his training. And he comes from a wealthy home, so there's no lack of resources. Now imagine the hungriest person coming into his table, destitute, starving, hopeless, and he's prepared the finest meal he has to offer. He's executed all of his resources to provide for them. That, that person isn't frustrated that the person is asking for food. It is joy-inducing. That is why he has trained all of these years to provide to others the treasures of his storehouses. He is only frustrated when the starving person comes in and pretends to have no needs. Because see, it's not their needs that keep them from him, but their pride. And so Thomas Goodwin says, look, Christ's own joy, his own joy, his own comfort, his own happiness, and his own glory are increased 
by showing grace and mercy and pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. God rejoices because he says, look again. Look, shuts down heaven. All right, guys, it's time for a party. You see what's happening? There's another sinner appropriating all that we did for them. The Father set a plan in motion. The Son executed the Spirit moving throughout this world. When in our lives we experience repentance, heaven rejoices. They're saying they're taking advantage of all that we've done for them. And so when Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord will be our strength, it's like him saying, look on the face of God and see his joy over you in Christ. And let that be the source of your strength in this world. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table, we would ask that you would meet with us. A father who loves to be with his children. There's no sin so great that the mercy and love and work and blood of Jesus does not cover us. And it is not with reluctance that you welcome us here but with great joy. This is our party, and Christ is our food, and His cross is our nourishment. And so take this ordinary, ordinary bread and wine and use it to the extraordinary end of causing joy to erupt in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.